Hi, my name is Suze Morrison. I'm the MPP for Toronto Centre. Welcome to my podcast, Stories for Change. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Suze Morrison, and I'm the member of Provincial Parliament for Toronto Centre. I'm also the NDP official opposition critic here in Ontario for tenants' rights, as well as urban Indigenous issues and the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls response. So before we start, I do uh, want to take a moment um, and bring our hearts and our minds together in a good way um, and acknowledge the land that we're gathered on. Um, now, I know that uh, a few of us are in a few different places, um, so I'm going to acknowledge the territory that uh, I know I'm located on and, and um, as well as uh, Brian and Josephine. Um, and uh, if folks are joining us from other places outside of downtown Toronto, um, please, if you want to just take a minute to personally acknowledge um, the territory that you're on as well. Um, but here in downtown Toronto, we're on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, the Huron-Wendat, the Métis, and many Indigenous nations um, since time immemorial. And uh, this part of southwestern or southern Ontario is also part of the Dish with One Spoon, uh, which is a wampum treaty. It's a traditional uh, treaty that was made that uh, uh, gives us all the responsibility um, to share the resources of the Great Lakes territories. Um, and, and that territory is represented by the dish um, on the wampum belt. Um, and it reminds us that we're all collectively responsible to the land um, and caretaking everything within it um, and uh, reducing conflict as much as possible. There's no knives at the table, only the spoon, uh, reminding us that we must always keep the peace. Um, and, uh, you know, additionally to that, I would um, like to acknowledge um, some of the conflicts that are going on in Indigenous territories today, whether that's the uh, Mi'kmaq fishers um, out on the East Coast fighting for the, their treaty right to fish, um, or with the Haudenosaunee down in Six Nations fighting to defend their land right now, or with the Wet'suwet'en um, out West fighting for, for their um, treaty and inherent rights as well. Um, so acknowledging all of those conflicts and, and um, standing today in solidarity uh, with all of those um, uh, with all of those folks um, from coast to coast. Uh, so again, thank you so much for joining us. Today, uh, you know, the environment, our health, and our economic well-being are inseparable. And that's why Jagmeet Singh and the NDP are fighting to ensure that all Canadians have the income that they need to stay healthy. New Democrats have fought for and delivered on enhancements to the CERB, pushed for the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy, paid sick leave for every Canadian with the Canadian Recovery Sickness Benefits. Uh, and we've done this by holding the Liberal government to account for everyday people. And I watched my, my colleagues, my brothers and sisters in our federal NDP uh, doing that great work every single day, and um, I cannot thank you enough. New Democrats, provincially and federally, continue to fight for Canadians under uh, the leadership of Jagmeet Singh uh, and with great MPs like Leah Gazan, whose motion 46 in the House of Commons calls for a guaranteed livable basic income. Uh, so without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our panelists for this afternoon. And oh my God, what a lineup. Uh, I'm so excited uh, to have everyone here with us today. Uh, so first we have Jagmeet Singh, who's the first racialized leader, leader of a major national political party here in Canada. And he's fighting for you every single day in parliament to make sure that you get the services you need. And he's not afraid to tax the rich to get that done. So please join me in uh, giving a warm welcome to the future Prime Minister of Canada, Jagmeet Singh. 
Uh, welcome. Uh, we're also joined by Brian Chang, who's our local Toronto Centre New Democrat candidate uh, and fighting so hard to be our next member of parliament here in the heart of Toronto uh, on the downtown east. Um, Brian is a labor organizer and he's fought for workers for so long, um, including at, um, at PSAC, at OPSU, and he's now at SEIU Healthcare. Uh, and, you know, I think it's really important to knowledge, acknowledge that it's, it's Brian working alongside frontline healthcare workers right now um, to defend their rights and make sure that they're safe um, and protected in their workplaces um, as we strive to get through this pandemic together. And I think that that's such uh, phenomenal work that you're doing. Uh, next, we have Leah Gazan, who's the Member of Parliament for Winnipeg Centre. Uh, she's an educator by trade uh, and has spent her life working for, for human rights at the local, national and international levels. Uh, uh, Gazan is the NDP critic for Children, Families and Social Development and recently introduced Bill C-232 which is the Climate Emergency Action Act uh, and submitted motion 46 to become the, uh, to convert the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit into a permanent guaranteed livable basic income. Uh, Leah is a member of Wood Mountain Lakota Nation located in Saskatchewan, which is Treaty 4 territory. Welcome, it's so excited to have you here. Uh, and I have to say, I've been a big fan for a long time. Uh, and so I'm uh, just thrilled uh, to be able to join you here today. Uh, and then next we have Joseph, Josephine P. Wong, uh, who currently works as a professor at Ryerson University here in Toronto Centre. Uh, she's led the development of the access and equity policies and public health practice frameworks. Uh, her program of research is underpinned by the principles of social justice and equity. Uh, she's committed to doing research with and not for affected communities. And she works closely with racialized and marginalized communities to identify what is possible through research in the areas of identity construction, migration and integration, HIV, mental health, and stigma reduction. She's currently leading multiple research projects to address racism as a structural determinant of health and a COVID-19 rapid response research community-based action uh, project. So again, thank you so much for joining us here. Um, and last but not least, I, I will mention Councillor uh, Kristen Wong-Tam, who's our local city councillor uh, here in Toronto Centre, um, will be joining us at about 2.30. Uh, she just had another um, council meeting that uh, she couldn't duck out of uh, quite on time, so I'll give her a more fulsome introduction um, when she joins us in just a little bit. Uh, so we're going to get started and get right into the questions for our panelists. Uh, so I'm going to start with our first question. In your perspective, what decisions by past governments have led to the conversations that we're currently having about guaranteed livable income during the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, and I think we'll start with Jagmeet. If he's there, his video's turned off for a hot second. Oh, there we go. Over to you, brother. I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Thank you, thank you for the great introduction. Thank you for uh, being a part of this great panel. You mentioned the panel. I'm excited that you're hosting it. You're amazing. Big shout out to Sue Morrison um, and our incredible team of New Democrats, provincial, federal, across this country. We're doing great work. So uh, really, really excited to be here. Uh, I want to just, again, shout out to everybody listening in Toronto Centre. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of important issues today. We're going to talk about how we can help people out. But one of the most important things you can do right now is get out and vote. Please get out and vote for uh, Brian Chang, someone I know really well, someone who's a dear friend, someone who's passionate, cares about this community, will fight for this community, and will demand better. 
We know that the liberals will say the right words, but they won't actually deliver on it. Uh, Brian Chang is someone who's going to fight for you. So if you're listening in Toronto Centre, uh, please get out and vote. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your uncle, your aunt, anyone you can think of, get them out to vote. Um, and big shout out to Leah who's joining us on the call. Uh, you all know Leah as someone who's been uh, a strong and powerful voice representing not only her riding and her community, but, but all Canadians. And her motion was recently shouted out uh, on SNL. It's pretty huge. Big shout outs there. Uh, so, so if I could just keep it really brief, um, throughout this pandemic, our focus has been on people. We've been focused single-mindedly, how do we help people in need? And that's been our focus. And we, as a smaller team, have been able to achieve mighty results because of that focus. We've thought about what are people going through right now and how can we help them? And, and so one of the major ways we can help people and what we thought it was to get money directly in their pockets. That's why we fought for SERP in the first place. At the beginning of this pandemic, the Liberal government wanted to just make it easier for folks to access EI by waiving a couple of weeks of requirements. That wasn't good enough. We said money should get out to people right away and get out to them directly. Initially, we'd said that money should get go out to everybody so we don't miss people in need. The Liberals wanted to design a program that excluded those who didn't need it at the cost of excluding some of the people who needed it most. So that's what we've been up against and that's what we've been fighting against. Every step of the way, we broadened the support of, of CERB and now the new shift to EI, we broadened it so it covered more people. We know that a lot of people have been left behind. There's so much more we need to do. We've got to keep on fighting to get help to people in need. We need to make sure that everyone has a chance to live their best life. And the only way we do that is by lifting each other up. We're all connected. We're all in this together. And you Democrats are going to keep on fighting for everything you need, from healthcare, housing, to making sure you've got direct financial support, to making sure our recovery is one that's focused on creating jobs in communities while we also fight the climate crisis. So we're here for you. Thanks so much for giving me a couple of seconds to, or a couple of moments to chat. And I pass it back to you, Suze. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll go over to uh, Leah. Um, again, same question to you. What decisions by past governments had le have led to the conversation that we're having now about guaranteed livable income during the pandemic? Well, I just want to uh, first uh, say how, how honored I am to be on the panel today, uh, certainly giving a big rooting for Brian Chang, like let's uh, get out and vote for Brian Chang. I'm really proud to be um, coming to you uh, today from Treaty 1 territory, uh, homeland of the Métis Nation. Uh, Treaty 1 uh, territory for the Anishinaabe, Cree, Dene, Dakota, and Oji Cree uh, nations. Um, I'm just going to begin. I'm going to just going to put it straight out there. One of the most violent human rights violations is poverty. That is, poverty is violence in action, uh, impacting historically uh, members of the BIPOC community. Uh, I've decided to put forward the motion because our social safety net, even EI, which was really traditionally uh, designed for white working men uh, who lost their employment is, is no longer inclusive. We know that the social safety net is not meeting the needs of people. So this is not my motion. This is the people's motion. I've been very clear on it, uh, developed in very, very uh, close consultation with Basic Income Manitoba, Basic Income Canada and many uh, different uh, groups around the country who believe that we need to put an end to poverty once and for all. Um, guaranteed income, we do have guaranteed income programs in Canada. OAS is an example of that, not livable. Uh, we have, for example, EI, again, 
not livable. I'm not proposing anything new. What I'm proposing is to make sure the guaranteed income programs we have are livable and expanded out. Uh, there's so many people who are being left behind that I mentioned in my motion. Students, disabled persons who have been totally uh, left, fallen to the, the wayside. Migrant workers, refugees, uh, uh, seniors, um, you know, many groups that have been left out of the picture uh, that are falling through the cracks, that have always fallen through the cracks. But now with COVID, we are seeing it in real time. So certainly in my community, that's the third poorest in the country. It's always been there. COVID has exacerbated this constant human rights violation of poverty that my community is faced with. And so I decided to put forward uh, this private member's motion have the support of the entire NDP caucus. We are leading the way on a guaranteed livable basic income. And I, I have to say, uh, having a shout out on Saturday Night Live was pretty exciting because it, because it tells me also that it's becoming a normal part of our conversation that we must, we must ensure that we can ensure that all people that are living on Turtle Island are living with uh, human rights and indignity. Thank you so much, Lee. And again, thank you for all of the work that you're doing uh, in Ottawa um, on behalf of not only your constituents, um, but folks all across Canada. We truly appreciate uh, your leadership and the work that you're doing. Um, now we'll flip it over to Brian. Again, same question. Thank you. Uh, two very hard people to follow, absolutely. And uh, you've reiterated so much of the reasons why we need to have these discussions now and why new Democrats have to have these discussions and not allow uh, neoliberals and capitalists to have discussions about the programs that we need, that we need to hear it from the ground. And I pointed this out to so many people over the course of the last uh, few weeks of the election, but there is nobody who hasn't been touched in some way, shape or form by the federal economic recovery programs over the course of the last few months. Because so many of us rely and are, are comfortable when we have access to a good good employment, our healthcare is tied to it, our, our, secure, our, our, our homes are tied to it, um, being able to spend money on entertainment, disposable income. It's all tied to having a good job. But over the, over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, people have lost their jobs and suddenly they find themselves without access to medication, without access uh, to, to being able to, to know where their next paycheck is coming. They've had to default on car payments, default on mortgage payments. They've, a lot of people have, uh, have had to worry about rent or are so far behind on rent now that they can't catch up. Um, so it really shows us that there, there needs to be, uh, we need to raise the floor. So when Lee is talking about the social safety net, it's about raising the floor for everybody so that as we're dealing with the ups and downs of the pandemic, going through shutdown, reopening, shutdown, reopening, losing your job, getting a new job, what do you do in, during probation, um, that we have this, this floor that raises for everybody so that you know that should a crisis happen, should you lose your job, should you not be able to, to, to access your, your, your job's uh, medical plan, that you're not going to end up in a total place of crisis, that there are government supports, that there is uh, pro uh, policies and programs in place to help support you through that work. So that's one of the reasons why we're proposing and why we're having this town hall, because we need to have these discussions. We can't let other, we can't assume that other parties will do this work. And even if they do, they will often get it wrong. So it's, 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 it's a space for us to, to take up and have these conversations. Thank you. Amazing, thank you so much, Brian. Um, and Josephine, over to you, uh, take us home on the last question here. Great, thank you. Um, I too thank you for inviting me to be here to show support to our brother, Brian. Brian had a long history of uh, community activism out there fighting for workers, fighting for 
sexual minority people fighting for racialized people. So I think it is really, really important that we are at a time where each one of us actually had to take a stand. Don't count on someone else to do our work. Each one of us had to do it. And I really appreciate and also agree with, um, you know, what everybody else had already said. Um, I really think that poverty is something that is unacceptable in our country where internationally we all have this reputation about how wonderful Canada is. Recently, there's an international survey and what is this like Canada is the best country to live in. And then I thought about which part of Canada. And so tied to poverty and as Leah pointed out, poverty is structural violence. And what's horrible about structural violence is that if I walk on the street and there's lots of racism going on since COVID-19 and someone could hit me, that's violence that actually could be captured. So people can see that I can name it, I can call the police. The kind of violence that we're inflicting on indigenous people, black people, racialized people, we know that all the statistics, Canada census data come out every five years, we're telling the same story. Racialized people, black people, indigenous people are living in high rate of poverty that is unacceptable. And our children, so we cannot live in a situation where some people get by, it's okay for them not having like, you know, water, safe water for our indigenous communities up north. People living in poverty, live, people living in such compact, high density situation where they cannot do COVID-19 public health, you know, principles and all that stuff. And I so agree that COVID-19 exposed all these. And so we had system that didn't work. I think when the welfare system started way back, it worked, you know, universal healthcare, it worked, but now we are getting into such a neoliberal way that we're losing it. We are living in a very inequitable world in Canada and that is unacceptable. Back to you, Suze. Thank you so much, Josephine. Um, okay, so our next question, um, and we're gonna go to Leah first on this one, um, is labor and anti-poverty activists have raised concerns about how a guaranteed livable income alone will not solve poverty. What other policies do we need in addition to guaranteed livable income uh, to really support folks to exit out of poverty? Uh, they are absolutely right. Uh, this is one uh, piece of the puzzle. I think that's why uh, in the motion, certainly in drafting of the motion, paragraph five is a critical piece, which is it states, in addition to current and future government public services, um, and income supports meant to meet special, exceptional, and other distinct needs and goals rather than basic needs, including accessible, affordable social housing and expanded health services, replace and then go on to replace its, its long, and I know I have limited time. So, so please read the motion. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I decided to put the motion forward along with the movement on the ground is that this is discussion that happened in Ontario and I know they did a pilot project. The problem was they did it um, as a replacement to uh, 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 or a replacement of uh, government programs and support. We cannot have that. That's why it's critical that new Democrats, uh, certainly uh, our party under the leadership of Jagmeet Singh, lead that discussion. Uh, I've gotten uh, support from across uh, party lines. It must be in addition to, and it also, uh, just to, to be very clear, 
that doesn't mean we shouldn't be fighting for a livable uh, minimum wage. Those fights continue. This motion, a guaranteed livable basic income, needs to be working side by side with that in addition to current and future government supports. And it must be livable. Uh, Greens have offered uh, guaranteed income programs as a replacement or not livable. My motion accounts for regional differences in costs of living. Uh, Vancouver is much more expensive to live in than Winnipeg. Northern Manitoba is much more expensive to live in than Winnipeg. And so it must account for those regional uh, differences. And we must also have also um, other um, uh, security measures put in place like legislation uh, that uh, prevents landlords from increasing rents. So I think, you know, like Medicare, people had horrors. Oh, Medicare, the sky's going to fall, all of this stuff. Uh, this is another income guarantee. Um, and and I and I think that it's a way forward, particularly knowing that this is one of potentially many pandemics to come. Thank you so much. And you know, I, before I turn over to uh, Jagmeet, you did mention the pilot project here in Ontario, um, and it's important to note that Doug Ford canceled that pilot project halfway in. Um, so you know, not only did um, you know, I think most importantly, we lost out on the the results. Um, and the research and the data that could have let us make more informed decisions um, on these policies. And I think that's the most shameful part of what happened there. Um, but over you to Jagmeet, um, same question to you. Um, again, we've heard from labor and anti-poverty activists about concerns that um, livable income, uh, guaranteed livable income alone isn't gonna solve poverty. Um, what other policies and programs do we need in place to help people? Well, those labor activists and, and poverty activists are absolutely right. Uh, imagine we were able to get money out to people, but they don't have a place to live. They don't have housing or their housing, they're being exploited. And the money that goes to them ends up in the pockets of uh, a wealthy landlord. Or if people can't afford medication, then if people have uh, a little income, but the income is all being spent on medication. So it absolutely is not going to be a silver bullet. It's absolutely important we get money into people's pockets. But we can't uh, ignore the housing crisis or the healthcare crisis that people are faced with. The pandemic exposed a lot of these problems. So what we need to do is have a universal healthcare system that covers you head to toe. So you don't rely on your job for your healthcare coverage, but it's part of our healthcare system. So dental care, uh, pharma care, we also need to build affordable housing. There's no question about it. If we don't have affordable housing, uh, when that's the biggest cost in people's lives, their rent, takes up a massive part of their income. Their housing costs are so high. We need to build affordable housing. We can do this though. So we build affordable housing, head to toe healthcare coverage, and uh, inc include in all that a strong safety net that gives people help when they can't work, when they're unable to work. Then we'll create a, a safety net that allows people to thrive. me you make my heart sing. You know, there's no other better reason to be a new Democrat than pharmacare, dental care, and affordable housing. Oh, you make me so happy. Um, we're gonna go over to Josephine next. Um, same question to you. What other programs and services do we need to complement uh, guaranteed livable income uh, to make sure that uh, we're actually able to lift folks out of poverty? So I think uh, Leah and Jamit have pointed out the really key ones, uh, but I was also thinking about food security. Uh, when Leah talked about, it's not only just about rent, you know, again, communities, families living up north had no access to the kind of food that would make them healthy, 
that is actually much cheaper to buy junk food, they have no access to fresh produce. I think those are uh, things that we need to pay attention to. And as I was listening to, you know, our brothers and sisters here talking about this, I'm also thinking about very often, whenever we talk about a policy change, then people will say, oh, it's about money, you know, deficit and all that stuff. I really think that it's time that we need to come back that we're human. We need to treat each other as humans and bring back the dignity and human rights. So it's not just about dollar and sign, but it's about why would we allow other people put it, to be living and put in a position as if they are less than human. So those are the type of things that we need to hold everyone accountable, especially our current government, when they can do something about it. Thank you. Amazing, and uh, over to Brian, same question for you. What programs and services do we need uh, to make sure that we're actually lifting folks out of poverty in addition to uh, guaranteed livable income? There are so many. Jagmeet mentioned when we're when we're when talking about these programs, we have to make sure that the money is not just being transferred elsewhere, right? Let a universal basic income can't be uh, can't be money that goes to a person and that person go it goes straight to a landlord. It can't go straight from a person into their pocket and then straight to a pharmaceutical company. So you have to make sure that we're we're building in the controls and 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 the support so that there are strong public services alongside. Um, when I was one year old in 1988, uh, the, the federal government passed a unanimous motion to end child poverty by the year 2000. It was called the Campaign 2000 Pledge. And I was involved in that back when I was in high school because the millennium was in pro, uh, was, had just happened. We were working on that. And it's a shame that I am now 33 years old and we are no closer to ending child poverty than we were when that motion was passed. And that's, that's a great shame. Uh, as somebody who's worked in labor, I will never advocate for the removal and elimination of public sector jobs and public sector services that I fought, I've spent my professional career fighting for these things. Um, but what we need is a, new, is, is a new approach because the way that we have been approaching uh, poverty, the way that we've been approaching food insecurity, the way that we've been approaching the lack of healthcare services is not working that we're seeing the COVID-19 has really showed us how these things are, are, are not supporting people. And, and to my labor allies out there, we should be having these conversations. Don't be afraid to have them because we need to be able to think, okay, what does it look like when there are we're a universal basic income that goes hand in hand with strong worker rights? Because we don't want to end up with that situation in which workers feel disposable, that, that right now employees are treating treating workers as disposable, but they, they might feel emboldened to the point where they can treat them even worse, should they, should they know that everybody has access to a universal basic income floor. So we want to make sure that we're building and enhancing labor standards at the exact same time. And that requires us to have these conversations about, uh, about what does uh, a strong social safety net look like? What does a, 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 an ideal design look like for uh, a universal basic guaranteed livable income? And then start to, start to action that so that, that we can make sure that, that landlords aren't the one benefiting from this, pharmaceutical companies aren't the ones benefiting from this, and mega corporations aren't the ones benefiting from it. This policy should be geared at everyday people, and that's what New Democrats will fight for. Thank you so much, Brian. Uh, we're going to go on to the next question now. Um, and uh, so to each of our panelists, and we'll go to Jagmeet first. Uh, what are the biggest holes in how Justin Trudeau is claiming that his safety net is solid enough to meet Canadians' needs um, that you're, you're seeing? So what are, what are the holes in the current safety net that we need to be building and improving on? Well, the, the biggest uh, and immediate thing that I can point to 
is throughout this pandemic, people living with disabilities have been completely missed, completely ignored and denied the help they need. I would say that would be the most flagrant and biggest gap in the response so far. Uh, their initial approach was to just give people with a disability tax credit help, which would be basically 40% of people that are living with disabilities. So they wanted to help out the least people possible. And so that would say that was the, that's the biggest gap. The other thing that I found with, with the Liberal government's approach and, and why when, when Justin Trudeau thinks that things are good, uh, I, I think about this, this, ex, this experience I had with him when I was talking about students. And I say, you know, students need help. We need to get help to students. And, and he said, and he said, oh yeah, you know, students are, they're going through a tough time right now. They're just gonna have to ask their parents, their mom and dad for extra money. And I said, that's where you went? When you think, when you think about students struggling, your first thought is a student that has parents that have enough extra money to help them out. You're not thinking about the kids of parents who don't have any extra to give, would love to give everything, their life for their kids, but they just can barely get by. So, so the, true, the, the Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government's approach has been, you know, they're not, they've not been thinking about the people who need help the most. They've been willing to exclude, uh, in their pursuit of excluding people who don't need help, they've been willing to let, let behind those who need it the most. And that's what we've been up against in terms of Justin Trudeau's perspective about you know, social safety net and help to people. He's been thinking about those who actually uh, are well off and not thinking about the people who are, are hurting the most. And, and we as New Democrats, you know, we know what it's like. We've experienced this either in our own lives or we've spoken with people. And we know that people can barely get by and they're hurting. And we need to get help out to everyone in need. And that's what drives us. That's what gives us a better you know, insight into what people are going through and then helps us fight for what people really need. Thank you so much, Jagmeet. We're going to go to Leah next. Um, and again, same question to you. Um, you know, what are the what are the biggest holes in our current safety net, um, and how do we how do we improve it? Uh, yes, a hundred percent. I just wanted to let Brian know uh, one of the drafters of of Motion Forty Six was actually Sid Frankel, who played a huge part in Campaign uh, Two Thousand. I had a pleasure to uh, do a lot of work with him when I was the president of the Social Planning Council of Winnipeg. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, our, our leader, uh, Jug Mead, uh, mentioned that the disability community, it's been abhorrent. Uh, and, and certainly uh, the uh, Indigenous communities across uh, the country, you know, uh, many uh, in individuals living in Indigenous communities, when they're on social assistance, receive $122 every two weeks. Can you imagine? Uh, Josephine, you pointed out issues of food security. Uh, the fact that that this country finds it acceptable that people have to live off $122 every two weeks for food, uh, where costs of food are, are that much higher, higher, that to me is a resounding, we talk about systemic racism, that reeks of systemic racism. Uh, again, with going back to my motion, I know the question is, isn't about just about my motion. That would be a game changer uh, in Indigenous uh, communities because we would finally have monies to then build local economies. Uh, food, food security, uh, you know, I, I, I support the work, good work of food banks. But we need to get rid of food banks. We need to ensure that that people have what what they need, so that they don't uh, need food food banks. I think my motion outlines all sorts of uh, of groups in this country that are left out, including uh, migrant workers, as we saw in Ontario, where they were stuck in isolated. 
uh, work or living spaces get given being given food rations. 2020, 2020. Uh, so there's all sorts of things that we don't talk about in this country, dirty little secrets that perpetuate systems uh, rooted in systemic racism that can continue to leave people uh, behind. We need to have these honest discussions. We need to name it. Uh, we need to name it um, even in the House of Commons. Uh, and we need to do better because right now when I look out my window, literally, uh, my neighbours uh, are struggling. And the struggle is is becoming greater. So I can tell you, uh, this liberal government, uh, this middle class, every time they talk about moving people to the middle class, what about people with severe mental health and trauma issues? Where do they fit into that uh, discussion? Seniors, are we going to tell seniors, you better pick up your bootstraps and get to work? Like, we need to have honest discussions about how uh, how dysfunctional our discussion even is around supporting people in this country. So um, as you can see, I'm not a big fan of this current government. I think a new democratic government led by uh, Jagmeet Singh would be much better. <laughs> Amazing, thank you, Leah. Uh, we're gonna go to Brian next. Um, again, same question to you. What are the holes in our current social safety net and how do we fix them? So many have been indicated here. I think what's important for people uh, to think about as well too is that there is a potential or the real potential. So many people thought a year ago, they would have thought that their lives were great, that they were, they had good paying jobs and everything was great. Here in Toronto Centre, we're seeing so many people who, who, who feel comfortable, but then suddenly over the course of, of the pandemic suddenly lost their jobs. And that's what we need to think about. It's just like, you may be comfortable at this moment, but should the worst happen and you lose your job or you get sick or you're infected with COVID-19, what are the supports that are available to you? How close are you to, how close are you? How many paychecks away are you from, from losing your home, from losing your, your job, losing your car, losing, not being able to pay for childcare. And, and for too many people in this riding and right across the country, it is, very close. It's imminent. It's right in front of people. And this is where these, these types of programs and these discussions were happening are, are important because it's not thinking about the policy need, not only just at this particular moment, but also the future ones as we're, we're encountering so many people who a year ago were super comfy. Everything was fine. They were great. Everything was peachy. And then COVID-19 hit and suddenly everybody is just like, it's not Google paying for people's groceries. It's not Microsoft paying for people's groceries. It's not Netflix that's giving you, uh, giving you money to 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 pay for dinner. It's uh, it's the federal government that's really stepped up, and and we need to make sure that those programs are so much better than they are. And it's new Democrats that have fought for this every single time. So this is, um, there are going to be and continue to be gaps. I'm somebody who lives with a disability. Um, I have a hearing disability. This ear does not work at all. Um, and it's it's like I've seen so many other colleagues who have uh, who have who have significantly more uh, of an issue participating in the job market than I do who have not received anything over the course of this pandemic and that's absolutely wrong. So this is where these types of policies we're talking about that are universal and raise the floor for everybody uh, help most those who are who, who fall through the cracks. Thank you so much, Brian. Uh, we'll go to Josephine next. Uh, what are the the holes that you see in our in our social safety net? Yeah, so uh, I think as we had all talked a little bit before is about how the unemployment insurance system doesn't seem to work anymore. Uh, as people, as Brian pointed out and Leah pointed out and Jack Mead had talked about, so many people are struggling during COVID-19 
but I have met people who had been struggling since 2008 with that bubble where the greed of people who are the finance system actually made it hard for everybody. There were people who lost job and never gained back jobs. And so then people are in precarious employment where people, the, and we all benefit out of the precarious employment, whether we acknowledge it or not. We benefited out of the temporary foreign uh, migrant workers who are working hard, don't really get you know, a standard of workplace quality or living. And so while people who are still struggling to recover, especially older workers, how does the retraining, the retraining didn't work for the older workers at all. EI doesn't actually have a system that really support people to be retrained. And so I think there are many holes that we all need to be honest as Canadian come together. And I think it ties to that whole thing about there's still fights about the environment, about whether we're going to green the economy. Well, if we don't want to destroy the planet and destroy the life for our next generation, we need to get smart and really think about all this social security system need to tie with how we're going to improve the environment. So all the holes are more than just economic, it's like all over the place. Thank you. Thank you so much, Josephine. And I do want to recognize that uh, Councillor Kristen Wong Tam has joined us. Um, so I'm going to throw the same question to her, but, I'm, but at first I'm just going to briefly introduce her to folks. Um, so Kristen Wong Tam um, has an extensive career uh, through the City of Toronto as our, our local city councillor here in Toronto Centre. Um, through both public and private sectors as well, she's um, you know really worked for, for our city for a very, very long time. Um, her contributions have led to the development and support of improved social planning programs, new affordable housing, innovative economic development programs, community art projects, and investments in diverse, family-friendly neighborhood planning. Um, so Councillor Wong Tam, we're so thrilled to have you. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's great to see your face. And um, yeah, we'll throw uh, the, the last round uh, for this question over to you. Uh, what are some of the gaps that you see in our social safety net and how do we fix them? Yeah, thank you very much, Suze, for that kind introduction. And to all of you on the screen, I, I wish we were actually together, um, but this, uh, this particular format is going to have to do for now. Um, and I am actually really pleased to, to be a part of this conversation, largely because I do think of it as being a very critical component on how do we actually advance civil society. Uh, COVID-19 and the global pandemic has shown uh, these social inequalities, the structural inequalities in ways that I think we uh, for, for some of us, we, we knew, but even to my uh, worst nightmare, it's actually uh, exceeded any of those, uh, those, those, uh, uh, those expectations and, uh, and, and it continues to, to get worse. Um, to your very excellent question, which is one I think that most elected officials are grappling with, and I've spoken to a number of my municipal counterparts uh, across uh, uh, Canada now because uh, we, we share information, you know, so how are, how is your provincial government interacting with your, with the federal government? Uh, are those services, uh, you know, being announced? Are they actually being received? Uh, what does it look like for you on the ground? And elected officials um, at the municipal level um, kind of are really, really close, as you all know, to the, the, the residents and, and at the neighborhood level. And what we're hearing is that um, it is not good enough. Um, and, and what can we do to make it better, to, to stitch that safety net back up? Um, number one, uh, we need to be able to center the experience of the user, the client, the citizen, so that therefore they are actively um, co-creating the system that will help us um, uh, uh, sort of close those, uh, those gaps so no one falls behind. 
Uh, two is that we need to be able to scale up the program. Enough with the tinkering. I got to say, uh, every time there's another government announcement come up, and sometimes even the city of Toronto, we do the same. We fall into the same trap. When we announce something, let's just get those details out as quickly as possible. And there is a lag time uh, between announcements made to that by the time the programs are, are detailed and by the time the website is and portal is open, it's taking too long and people don't have days to wait. They are literally hanging on hour by hour. Um, so I think that would be a, an important piece of the, of the puzzle as well um, on top of system navigation. Um, and it's not just a matter, and I'll finally finish on this point, it's not just about um, creating um, a, a guaranteed livable income, and that is very important. And so, so Leah, I thank you for your leadership and Jagmeet for championing that in Ottawa, because uh, it's, it's long overdue for that national conversation. Uh, but it's also making sure that all the other programs and services that were designed with the values that we have um, actually work. And right now, there are just so many things that are not working because they are not well-funded, they're not adequately funded, communities are, are not resourced properly, um, and that's clearly have, have got to change, especially in, in, our, in our community in Toronto Centre. That's what we'd be looking for. So thank you. Thank you so much, Kristen. Um, and I, I have a kind of follow-up question specifically for you. You know, from your experience as a city councillor, what kind of leadership um, do you need to see from your federal counterparts um, to end poverty in Toronto Centre? Um, here at home, I know you just touched on, um, you know, the, the need to not just tinker around the edges, um, but um, if you want to elaborate more on, on specifically what we need to see from our federal partners to help our community here locally. Yeah, no, Suze, thank you. Um, you know, cities are at, at the front line of, uh, of the COVID crisis. Uh, we work hand in hand with our provincial and federal partners. Um, and uh, at the same time, we have the least amount of money, the least amount of power. And I would say, uh, from my vantage point, the most responsibility, um, because it's that order of government that people are most connected to day to day. Um, and in Toronto Centre, we've got three priority neighbourhoods, uh, which are defined loosely as, you know, the poorest neighbourhoods in the city, it's labeled a priority neighborhood or strong neighborhood. We have three of them. And yet geographically, we are, we are geographically, we're the smallest uh, ward in the city. So our poverty levels are concentrated. And I oftentimes, uh, you know, remind myself and, and, and as I speak to constituents, and I'm sure that everyone on the screen, including actually Professor Wong, is that when you talk about this issue, there's a human face to it. And so when you talk about child poverty, it's not just a child that is poor, it's the parent or, or usually single uh, family-led parent who's usually a woman and most likely a racialized black or indigenous woman who is poor. So in order for us to actually tackle the systemic issues, we have to address structural racism. We have to unpack uh, what colonization has done to the indigenous community. And we also have to level the playing field. And that means that we invest strategically in communities that have been under-resourced and we need that partnership from the federal government. Our, our last MP, uh, Bill Morneau, really nice guy. I liked him a lot. We have really wonderful conversations. But when it came to, to boot on the ground, if there was one thing I could say to Bill, and I've actually said it to staff, and he has heard it from me, is I kind of wish he was a little bit more present. Um, that's not to say he wasn't a fine human being, but the challenge we have is that we really need people in our communities, especially our elected officials who are going to be in our community and living the experience that we're living. Otherwise, unfortunately, you might be a little bit out of touch. This is not a slight on any of the fine candidates that are running in Toronto Centre. Uh, Brian and I have known each other for a long time. He's an excellent friend. 
Um, but I just, I, I, I tell you that the stakes are so high for our war. The stakes are so high for our riding. Uh, we need to have somebody who's going to champion us. Thank you so much, Kristen. Um, and I think um, you know, in response to that, we'll pop over to Jagmeet and, and perhaps Jagmeet, you can touch on um, some of the, the NDP platform pieces that we've talked about um, that speak to funding cities and making sure that our municipal partners um, are best equipped to, um, to respond to issues like poverty at the local level in our community. Well, first, thank you so much. First off, a big, big shout out to Councillor Kristen Wontem. She is an amazing, uh, champion for her city and just uh, all around just an amazing human being. I was going to say like, uh, I don't know how to describe her, her fierceness, but her composure, resilience, uh, anyways, amazing human being. And uh, the ward is so, so lucky to have someone like you, Kristen. Uh, so we, I agree, absolutely. What we've seen, I, I was a provincial representative before I became federal and decades and decades of of downloading, putting more and more responsibilities on cities has made what Kristen described, what Councilor Wontang described uh, as uh, an untenable situation even worse. Like for years and years, what's been happening is the provincial governments have been putting more responsibilities on, on cities, despite the fact they've got the least means to raise revenue to actually pay for those services. So that that's kind of the context. And what that means for people is People are hurting. People don't get the services they need, and and they they don't get the help they need, the supports they need. So we've been proposing a couple of things. One is we need to have a better relationship between the federal government directly with the municipal order of government. That that direct relationship is important, and of course we respect the constitution and there's ways to do it while respecting it. One really concrete thing is we've been proposing uh, doubling the gas tax as a permanent fixture to make sure there's this at least steady stream of income coming in. Uh, another thing is we've noticed with infrastructure projects, there's been great announcements, but they're just announcements and cities haven't been able to actually uh, access a lot of the funds. And, and then there's also this notion around kind of uh, funding something that looks exciting as opposed to what the city or the community really needs, like that, that fits into the vision of what's going to make that community more livable. So that's another area. Broadly speaking, for the recovery, I look at cities as a great opportunity for us to, to do something right. The decisions we make now for the next couple of years in the recovery will define the next couple of decades. So massive investments in public transit, in retrofitting homes, in building affordable housing, all tied to creating jobs in communities are ways to create an opportunity to build a better living, a better livable city, but also create good jobs and also do our part to fight the climate crisis. So I imagine that as our kind of go forward, immediately giving cities better funding and then helping to make an investment strategy that, that actually targets creating jobs and building a more livable city and fighting the climate crisis, kind of all three of those things together. Thank you so much, Jagmeet. Um, we're going to go over to Brian, um, and, I, and I'm hoping maybe you can touch on um, some maybe additional pieces um, of the NDP platform uh, that can really support uh, municipalities and people at the local level to address poverty, maybe in more indirect ways um, that we don't often think about. And, you know, for example, transit or, or any other areas that you want to focus on. Thank you. Um, and, and hi, Kristen, it's great to have you here. Um, always your, your, your wisdom and your, your deep connection to all of the issues going on is, is always readily and apparent. And, and I, would, I look very forward to hopefully working with you um, as, as the member of parliament for the area. Um, 
I'm thinking about transit. So I have mentioned this already, but like my my friends, I've spent a lot of I it's one of the primary ways I, I get around the city is is by public transit. And here in Toronto, it's it's a huge part of of what the city does is 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 the service of the TTC. And it has been a struggle. Um, it is a struggle now because people are crammed, um, people are are stuck. We think there's no social distancing. Um, but also the rise, Josephine mentioned the rise of East Asian uh, racism, and 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 I know the city is tackling this as well, too. And Kristen's been a leader on that. But but we're seeing so many stories and I have so many stories of friends and family I'm terrified like if my mother was to ever take the TTC I would be terrified that she's exposing herself not only to COVID-19 but the potential for some serious violence um, as a result of, of, of the racist vitriol that has creeped up from the south into into here and exacerbating the issues that are already at play here that are anti-Asian uh, and anti-East Asian in particular. So there, there are so many, there are so many other overlapping crises, and and Jagmeet has mentioned them as well too. Um, but one thing that I'm really worried about is 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 what does transit look like in which people are afraid to take it? Um, how, what does that mean for our way of being able to move towards a zero emission fu future if people are afraid to take transit? And, and there definitely is an important part to play for the federal government in that to make sure that that at the very least, we can ensure that public health rules are upheld as, as people are trying to get around the city. Toronto Centre is full of people who weren't able to work from home. They're, they're minimum wage workers who are at the front lines of, uh, of, of, of healthcare, at the front lines of retail. They've been, in, they've been powering all of the stores so that we can have stuff, right? And like to be safe in our homes. They're the ones driving deliveries around so that we can order things by mail. Um, so they weren't able to self-isolate. They weren't able to work from home, and and they've continued to to be out. And we're seeing this. There, there. Toronto is in outbreak right now, um, and especially in Toronto Centre, there are so many communities here with incredibly high rates of COVID nineteen. And we have to make sure that we're being able to support those people because, like Kristen said, it's not, it's not just a statistic. Like. I can see the faces of the people who are struggling. I can see the faces of my friends and family who have been who've been assaulted on, on public transit and, and are terrified of being out in public. And they're the ones that we need to start uh, implementing um, programs and supports for so that we can we can get past this and 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 ensure a better, more equitable future for 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 people at Toronto Center and right across Canada. Thank you so much, Brian. Um, we're gonna pop over, pop over to um, Dr. Wong. Um, can you discuss uh, wraparound services um, that are currently being uh, underfunded, uh, particularly the homelessness crisis during COVID-19? Um, and again, how that affects um, our ability to actually, uh, you know, make any progress um, towards addressing poverty in our communities. I think COVID-19, as Brian had pointed out, part of it, and I think even when we think about the entire thing about uh, basic income, it really, we really need to address systemic racism. Like we can't idle anymore, we really cannot stop. So we think about who lives in, uh, you know, Christine long term just talked about, you know, we have priority neighborhoods. City of Toronto is divided in such that there are safe neighborhoods, there are neighborhoods where people are fine. So when we look at neighborhoods with low incomes, they are all racialized. We look at neighborhoods with low income, higher rates of diabetes. So then higher rates of diabetes, higher risk of severe impact on the health when people get COVID-19. Low income, the essential worker, as Brian talked about, they are exposed. And if we think about even what happened in long-term care homes throughout Ontario and across the country, who were the people who actually were infected? 
elderly people. So then in our society, what is this? Like, to me, I find it really, really difficult to accept because I was raised in a culture where you really respect elderly people because they contributed to life and society. And then who were taking care of these elderly people? New immigrants, women, racialized women, part-time work, precarious work. We had been in a mess in COVID-19 when we started out and we all, Canada sounded like we are doing really well. Well, we weren't. And it's not an equalizer. It actually really exposed all the inequities. And so when we look at long-term care about standard, we can't just look at standard. We need to look at what else is tied to those standard. We privatize nursing home. If someone's gonna make profit, they're not gonna have very good standard. And even before COVID-19, I hear from elderly people, residents talk about they cannot eat the food. Either the family bring food in or they cannot eat the food. That is unacceptable. And so people who are working there, doing a few jobs, no equipment. What kind of discrimination is that? Like, you know, I'm sure that Brian, you were really mad about labor protection across, you know, all places, factories. So I think that there are, this COVID-19 came, it didn't make anything new, except that we are all at risk of getting sick. Some are more at risk than others, but all those systemic structural violence and inequities had always been there. And I really hope that all Canadians really make a commitment and say, no more of this. We need to make this a better society, a more equitable society, a more compassionate society, where so we all live as human and not like semi-human. That makes me mad, but anyway. Thank you so much, Josephine. It makes me mad too. Honestly, I think if anything that COVID-19 has revealed to us, it's the complete an absolute failure of the for-profit long-term care system um, in Ontario and across Canada. Um, you know, profits have no place um, in our healthcare system. Um, and, and so I want to thank you for, for raising that important issue and particularly connecting the linkages to, um, to racism and to, um, and to workers and, uh, you know, to the folks who are the most marginalized on our front line and the most susceptible uh, to being in danger of COVID-19 in our community. That's the, um, you know, predominantly uh, racialized newcomer uh, women who are doing that care work um, and making very, very low incomes doing that work. So thank you so, so much for connecting all of those things together. Um, we're gonna go to, to, to Leah next. Um, and, I, and I'm hoping you can maybe make some connections as well between some of the conversations that we've been having around um, you know, basic income and the social safety net and um, addressing poverty as a whole um, and link it um, uh, to, um, to indigenous communities and, um, and the work that we need to do um, towards reconciliation and, and perhaps uh, maybe in the context of, of some of the recent um, land and treaty conflicts that we've seen in the last number of weeks. You know, if you if, if thank you so much for the the question, I just want to start out by welcoming uh, Councillor Wong Tam to to the panel as well. Um, you know, the the most tragic uh, part of call it violent colonization is that not only did they dispossess us of our lands. Uh, through genocidal acts, but they also left us homeless on our own land. So if you look at, you know, rates of poverty of Indigenous uh, people throughout the country, certainly in my uh, riding, we have a high number 
of Indigenous people that comprise the, the homeless uh, community um, in my riding. Um, and poverty. I, I know uh, often people talk about people being poor, being lazy. Actually, poverty is a lot of work. Poverty is a full-time job. Where am I going to Where I'm going to stay tonight? Uh, where, what? How am I going to eat today? Am I safe? Do I need to go somewhere else? Uh, is my life at risk right now? Poverty is a 24-hour-a-day job. So anybody who is poor is anything but lazy. They actually work hard to survive every single day. We will never have reconciliation in this country in the absence of justice. You know, we look at what's happening uh, in, in, in Indigenous communities from Wet'suwet'en territory, Swet'mik territory, uh, Mi'kmaq, what's going on uh, right now in Six Nations, Ganesatage. There has been a willful violation of Indigenous human rights. And one of the things that has been so normalized is that Indigenous people's minimum human rights, minimum human rights that are articulated in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, are up for debate every single day in the House of Commons where people uh, pick and choose which rights they want to honour on a given day. Uh, one of the one of the one of the the, the outcomes uh, from this this uh, historical and ongoing uh, human human rights violations is it's left us poor on our own lands. Whether it's in our territories through things like the Indian Act that dispossessed our ability to even have local economies, uh, to the kind of racism that has, has excluded us from workforces, uh, keeping us poor in urban centers, and from the lack of uh, resources uh, that are provided for the historical and ongoing trauma, uh, colonial trauma uh, that many people experience uh, in terms of serious mental health and uh, trauma issues that result in it being difficult uh, to function day to day in turn resulting in poverty, including the number of kids in care in Manitoba, uh, 11,000, 93% of whom are Indigenous, who often age out of care into homelessness and poverty. And so I think we need to have those honest discussions. Uh, I think we need to have these discussions and make them human rights matters, uh, whether it's my Bill 232 when I'm talking about a clean, health and safe environment as a human right has been recognized in over 100 countries and the, around the world. And I think we need to start talking about poverty as, as a violent, intentional and willful human rights violation. We know through CERB that, that we actually do have the resources but lack the political will. And uh, just just one last point, you know, I've said in, in many panels uh, on uh, guaranteed livable um, uh, basic income, like, I don't hear a lot of people saying, oh, those corporate welfare bums sitting on a yacht drinking a cocktail on my taxpayer dollars, right? Right? We need to change the discussion. Uh, we need to, to, to address stereotypes around people for people that are living rough. It's a lot of work. And, uh, you know, like Josephine uh, has mentioned and Jagmeet and Brian, we need to do better to make sure that all people, no matter where they're at in life, no matter where, they're where they find themselves, that they always have basic human rights and they always are able to live in dignity. That's part of our charter, that, which is part, forms part of our Canadian constitution. I'm just trying to heed uh, my responsibility as a member of, of parliament 
to uphold our constitution and the charter. Thank you so, so much, Leah. And I, we're just at three o'clock now. Um, so we're gonna wrap things up. And I just, I wanna say thank you so much to all of our panelists uh, for the great dialogue that we've had today and for all of the, the insight and the passion that you've brought to this conversation. Um, you know, one of the things that I see is that um, there's so much work to be done for new Democrats and progressives in our communities um, to make our, our country uh, and, our, and our provinces and our cities uh, one where everyone can stay safe and healthy um, during the unprecedented crisis uh, that we're going through right now. Um, and, and certainly this crisis has uncovered, um, you know, the depths of uh, of poverty in our community, um, you know, that have always been there, but um, have just been amplified and made so much worse uh, by the pandemic uh, that we find ourselves in. Um, you know, and, and I think, uh, Leah, you said it best there when you said, you know, we have the resources, what we lack is the political will. Um, but when I look around my Zoom screen here, um, I see a lot of folks with a lot of political will uh, to do right by our community. And that gives me hope um, that uh, we can see the types of changes that we need to see in the future. Um, so again, I want to thank all of our panelists for joining us today. Um, and in closing, I just I want to remind everyone that's watching that, you know, if you live here in Toronto Centre, um, you have a choice on Monday to vote for a new voice um, who's going to fight for you in Ottawa. Uh, and I really want to strongly encourage you to check out brianchang.ca uh, and learn about, uh, about Brian and his history of work standing up for our community um, and all of the reasons that, uh, that we love him uh, and learn about the NDP's plan uh, to you know, plan for pharmacare and dental care uh, and uh, affordable housing and uh, to make sure that we are addressing these complex uh, issues of poverty um, uh, and that and that a future without poverty is possible. Uh, so please uh, check out our plan, check out brianchang.ca and thank you so, so much for joining us all. Um, miigwech. Hey Brian. Yay Brian. Yay, Yay Brian we need Brian. Get out and do it. <laughs> Thanks so much everyone. Thank you. Vote for Brian.